Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the OSINT Bunker podcast that definitely isn't weekly anymore, so that. Um, I know it's weird that I'm leading us in today, but John is not here, um, but we have replaced him with someone with far more experience in the field and in command. Um, uh, we have, now if I'm if I'm not ro- wrong, you retired as a... Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, if I'm not incorrect. That's great. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart. Lieutenant, Stu- Colonel. Lieutenant yep. sorry. Uh, the the, no, 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 the American it's, is... It's Lieutenant Colonel over your side and uh, Lieutenant Colonel this side. Yes, I'm I'm Americanizing everything because, of course, I'll <laughs> the, the, the two of us that are the Americans will take over. But um, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Crawford, um, who has some deep experience, um, especially on on the the armored side of the equation, um, and I'll just sort of let you so let you describe yourself and and let you kind of lead us in here. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. Uh, my name's Stuart Crawford. Um, I suppose my essential background is that I spent twenty years as a regular officer in the Royal Tank Regiment. Uh, specifically in the 4th Royal Tank Regiment, which was very much the Scottish one. Uh, and you may pick up slight sort of Scottish twang in my voice. Uh, and during that time, I, I went through the whole uh, gamut of troop leading uh, and, uh, and then a headquarters position and various courses and ended up leading a squadron uh, in Germany just towards the end of, of the Cold War before we all drew down. Um, one other claim to fame is that uh, I was a graduate of the British Army Staff College. I'm also a graduate of the US Army Staff College at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, uh, where I spent a very happy year, after which I then came back to the British Army Staff College as an instructor. So I've been around the, the, the block a couple of times on that. Currently I'm working, well I'm retired the age now, but I'm now working uh, uh, in the media side with a regular column in Britain's Daily Express, which is a sort of mid-market uh, newspaper, and some broadcast stuff, including CNN International, BBC, um, Turkish television, Polish television, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, that's where I am at the moment. No, that's great. And I, I know, I, I think, you know, just leading into probably the, the part that everyone wants to hear, you did have some staff experience during the first Gulf War. Am I correct? Um, yes, you are absolutely correct. I was uh, sent out as an individual to, as a staff officer to the first Gulf War, uh, what you would call Desert Storm, I think we called Op Gran- Granby. And I was in the, the-, the British Theatre Headquarters, which was Headquarters British Forces Middle East in Riyadh, uh, where the general to whom I was working was General Sir P- Peter de la Billier. So it wasn't an operational headquarters, it was a theatre headquarters. It was basically the British headquarters, which uh, had ultimately had, the, had the, the job of either saying yes or no to our, our US coalition partners and leaders. But thankfully, it never came to that. And I know that that kind of gives you a really interesting point of view to the entire situation. You really did have that kind of eye in the sky, theater level command uh, view of of the the conflict. And at least from you know, obviously everyone starts to get you know making comparisons um, to you know armored warfare and and comparing to the the current conflict in Ukraine. And I think you know. The, the Russian intention during the, the first few weeks of, of the invasion were was to, you know, create something very similar to the first Gulf War, you know, maintain air superiority immediately um, and, and march heavily armored columns towards 
um, major Ukrainian positions, surround them, defeat them, encircle them, um, and and then you know capture larger civilian populations. Um, and and sort of how does that compare with sort of the the intention and then the execution of the coalition during during the um, the invasion? Um, right, the coalition invasion of um, uh, uh, Iraq and Kuwait back in nineteen ninety one. Was was a pretty impressive piece of work, to be perfectly honest. It was led by the Americans, um, whose staff work, um, I mean, one hesitates to say was immaculate, but it was pretty good. And of course, it was predicated on overwhelming combat uh, power being visited on on the enemy. Uh, I have a couple of reservations about the fact that I think that um, they always say in war it's a cardinal mistake to underestimate your enemy. And I think that one could extend that and say it's also a bit of a mistake to overestimate your enemy. And I think we overestimated the Iraqi army, large and equipped with lots of equipment, though it was. It turned out to be very much a third world army dressed up in first world equipment to a certain extent. And I think people knew that before we launched across. But the big difference between um, the first Gulf War and what's happening in Ukraine is, of course, that the Allies had overwhelming air superiority, and therefore could basically range at will across uh, uh, the Kuwait theatre of operations. Yes, we lost a few aircraft, but in in the round, it wasn't actually that many uh, compared to how it might have been. Nobody has got air superiority in uh, Ukraine or has had it in the past. And uh, whilst it was the Russian intention, I think, to do a classic sort of decapitation of the government by driving down the motorway, uh, capturing Kiev and getting rid of Zelensky and co. Um, the Ukrainians had pretty good intelligence what was coming. And I won't make any accusations where that um, intelligence came from, but I think we can all guess. And so they dispersed a lot of their assets and the Russians really um, underestimated the tenacity and courage of the Ukrainian defenders. And now we are where we are today, a bit of a stalemate, Um, small gains there, small losses there, more like First World War, attritional uh, warfare than it is anything that we saw towards the end of the Second World War or indeed in Iraq. Yeah, and I I think going back to what you said, one of the most interesting vignettes I think I've found from the war um, was the first tank brigade. Um, whose garrison legitimately sits right on the the border with Russia uh, or with Belarus, um, sort of right right on the other side of the Dnipro from uh, from Chernobyl, um, and when they you know twenty four hours maybe less than twenty four hours before the outbreak of the of hostilities they they basically road marched um, their entire brigade from their garrison um, and took up positions in the the nearest city Chernihiv. Um, and and proceeded to both fight delaying actions and and also hold the city um and and significantly threaten russian supply lines for for over a month um you know when when you sort of see that how how much of a reaction is that how much of a, a feat is that to sort of pick everyone up from the garrison and just go move you know with with that very short notice well, it's pretty impressive, actually, and it shows a certain agility in, in the command, uh, command and control aspects of the Ukrainian military. Um, but I think that the Russians made a, a, a number of assumptions. I think they as- assumed that attacking Ukraine would be the same as attacking 
uh, Georgia are attacking um, uh, Chechnya to a certain extent, or even the annexation of, of Crimea some eight years beforehand. And they really weren't very clever about it. They attacked at the wrong time of year when they couldn't get off the roads uh, because the, the ground is, is sodden and vehicles become bogged. And they didn't get their combined arms operation uh, in place as, as they should have done. Um, and so it was a combination of the Russians being rather sort of lackadaisical about how they went about their business and the Ukrainians, to a certain extent, pre-warned, being, being agile and decisive, uh, which led to the Russian, I mean, you know, it's the Russian defeat at Kiev. I don't think there's any doubt about it. They were defeated at Kiev, uh, particularly when they failed to, to capture the, um, uh, the airfield at Hostomel, I think it is. So it was impressive stuff. The problem is, of course, that, that um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, still a lopsided battle. The Russians have got huge amounts of men and material, not all of the most modern, um, but the Ukrainians are, are outnumbered in almost every aspect. And slowly but surely, the West is beginning to re-equip and train the Ukrainians. So it's more of a, an even contest, I think. Yeah, and I, I going back to that that early battle um, around Kiev, you know, obviously led by the VDV with with their interesting mechanized force fighting structure, um, primarily using very lightly armed or or somewhat heavily armed but but lightly armored um, airborne infantry fighting vehicles that that had certain weaknesses. I I think when it when it came to actually dealing with some of the heavier equipment that the Ukrainians were able to to actually field at least in Kiev. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, you, I, I would throw into that equation the um, US supplied Javelin anti-tank missiles and, and the UK supplied NLOS, the um, shorter range um, uh, anti-tank missiles. I think the way that they were deployed and how effective they were came as a major shock uh, to the Russians. Uh, as did the use of UAVs and drones, etc., etc. Although they should have been forewarned about the latter because of the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, which was only a you know a couple of years ago. So no, I think I think they were very lackadaisical in their approach, and they just thought that Ukraine would crumble. Everybody would say, "Oh well, here they are." Zelensky would go uh, go into to exile or or disappear and a puppet government would be reinstalled because that's what had happened before on you know other occasions and they just got it completely wrong yeah and i i i also find it interesting the the russians attempted or or at least you know to preface the viewers who might not be as familiar with this um but but the russians very very heavily utilize a, a tactical formation or a tactical grouping called the battalion tactical group um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a, a combination of, of, you know, splitting up, you know, regimental sized formations into, you know, more smaller, technically holistic units. Um, but do you think that ended up being a weakness in Ukraine, especially around Kharkiv? Yes, I think, I think it, it may well have done because obviously the, the, uh, battalion tactical group is, 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 doesn't compare with a brigade, uh, combat team, if you like. And, um, I, I just think that they, they underestimated or overestimated what they could do with um, the formations uh, that they were used to and that, that, that they tried to use in, in the invasion. Um, you know, a, a, a battalion tactical group isn't very big in, in sort of conflict terms, really. Uh, and, and, and I'm talking against myself because I remember 20 years ago arguing in the British Army that, that, that we should adopt the same sort of 
uh, all arms grouping rather than have uh, the traditional British infantry and tank regiments. And now I'm not so sure. I, I don't think they are big enough to be able to have a real impact of mass on the battlefield. Yeah, and it's it's that situational problem where where something that might work really well in you know an anti insurgency operation, which maybe is what the Russians plan to deal with um, in Ukraine, but but is is far less able to deal with an actual organized enemy that's relying on you know traditional brigade structure or or traditional battalion structure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think also that. Um... I mean, certainly in the Second World War, the, the Germans were very uh, successful in sticking together, I think, what they called Kampfgruppe, um, which is basically an ad hoc arrangement using all the troops that were available at the time for the actual action. But that was driven by necessity rather than by doctrine. Um, but they managed to do it um, very successfully because, you know, I mean, they were uh, certainly up until 19, sort of late 1944, 1945, a very well-trained, if not terribly well-equipped army. So I think that, um, you know, I've, I've said this a hundred times in, in stuff that I've been writing to the newspapers, mass matters. If there's one lesson that comes out of Ukraine is that numbers matter. And I'm now beginning to think that this Western um, practice, and, and I'm thinking of the UK in particular, but it may apply elsewhere, of having small numbers of highly competent, technically advanced um, fighting vehicles, for example, like tanks, but which cost a fortune, whether we're in danger of putting our limited eggs into one basket, we might be better off going for large numbers or larger numbers of less capable uh, vehicles because losses are inevitable. And, and, and I came up with this calculation, and it's completely sort of, you know, back of a fag packet, that if a new Leopard 2, for example, or an M1A1, costs, say, $10 million dollars, well, you can actually get about 50 T-55s for that. And with the best will in the world, you know, one M1A1 or M1A2 or Leopard 2A7 isn't going to defeat 50 T-55s. It'll just, they'll just be overwhelmed. Yeah, and I, I think that the, at the same time, you go back to the crewing issues, where if you have, you know, a limited population um and also a limited population of 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 service members that you can actually put in uniform sans sans going back to conscription and and i don't think any of us imagine that would be politically popular um but i think as we're seeing at least in southern ukraine right now is that you have to have a level of crew competency to to actually utilize any type of platform whether it be you know an an older bmp1 or or a you know a leopard 2a6 um, and and I I do think there there is that that debate to be had on on both crew competency, crew experience, and and also the the defense economic side of things. Oh, I, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I've I've all, I have always and long said and I'm said until people are fed up me saying it that I'd much rather have a a well trained and competent crew in an inferior vehicle and a badly trained crew in a superior one. Yeah, and and it I, I it just goes back to training time and 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 resource allocation for for crews as well, um, yeah. and and it all comes back to money in the end. I'm afraid <laughs> it all comes back to budget. Yeah, it's 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 all a budgetary issue, um, and I think the biggest one there as well is sort of the supply situation. I think we saw you know early on and and even today you know Ukraine is dealing with 
a number of different disparate systems that all require their own supply pipeline and all require, you know, separate replacement parts. And Russia early in the war had their own issues with with supplies. And where do you think that kind of figures into the the current equation in Ukraine? Well, I mean, I mean uh, you know, the uh, I think uh, that we in uh, Western countries in NATO were working on a presumption of uh, consumption of things like artillery shells and so on and so forth, which was so completely off the pace uh, for modern conventional warfare in Europe that everybody's had to rethink again. And of course, uh, the factory capacity isn't there to, to, to produce them in the numbers that, that are, are, are required. So I think that the, um, the industrial, the military industrial complex is really having to strain uh, to produce uh, the required amounts of um, munitions for Ukraine, but also to re- to start manufacturing the required amounts of munitions uh, for the, uh, their own uh, country's um, military. And I know this is happening in the United States with its huge industrial capacity, uh, and I know that it's happening in, in the UK to, to a lesser but significant extent. For example, the, the factory in Belfast that makes the Enlaw anti-tank weapon, I mean, it must be working three shifts a day, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year at the moment. Yeah, and, and I I well know that U.S. ammunition manufacturing plants um, that, that mostly are, are focused on artillery shells um, uh, that, that are in Pennsylvania right now are, are running, you know, double, triple shifts every every single day. Um, yep. and, and also relying on, you know, very interesting places to to acquire weapons. I, I know there was a, a report either today or yesterday um, from a Ukrainian uh, rocket artillery unit using BM-21 Grad rockets that were seized somehow from North Korea. Um, yeah, no, I, I read that. That was very interesting. Yeah, and and sort of these, I I think there's there is only a point at which you know when North Korea has a has somehow a better defense manufacturing base for for artillery shells and 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 rockets than than you know NATO countries and and other Western countries, there there is kind of that that not it's not even a debate because it's a, it's just a well realized issue that that at least Europe and the United States is is kind of falling behind on on that that underlying manufacture of of equipment yeah i mean the you know the lesson from ukraine is that you need tons of stuff to do it properly and i think that uh, certainly the uk and maybe to a certain extent the us were lulled into a false sense of security by um, the counterinsurgency and counterterror uh, wars in Afghanistan and to, uh, and in Iraq, where th- there wasn't a huge expenditure of, of ammunition because the, the targets to fire at were um, asymmetric, uh, smaller, more mobile, etc., etc., and not dug into prepared positions. And I think that sort of was a false lesson. And they always say, you know, that the, certainly in Britain, you know, we always enter the next war perfectly prepared for the last. And I think, you know, the, the Ukraine just underlines the truth of that. No, absolutely. And and I think that again, as you said, the the Iraq issue, you know, the the M777 crew that, you know, fires maybe five or six shells a day um versus the the crew in Ukraine who's actively working to see how many tens of thousands of shells they can put through a single barrel. Um yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firing, you know, in some cases hundreds of rounds per day. Yeah. So and, um uh, it's just a different order of magnitude um uh, that to that which we were expecting. But we should have known, you know, because if you look at um, 
Second World War, for example, which is probably the most comparable um, uh, conflict to the one going on in Ukraine at the moment, the Allies, I mean, expended I mean, millions of tons of munitions in breaking through the German lines. The, um, the, the uh, UK and, and Canadian armies in Op Goodwood lost a third of their tanks in three days. And we've just lost sight of that. No, absolutely. And if, if you even look at the, the, you know, the calculations for a fold-the-gap scenario, um, the, the, the preparations that were made, you know, the, the anticipated both losses and ammunition expenditure were incredibly high. And, and I think a lot of that thinking kind of, it, it faded with kind of the rise of, you know, the, at least the, the third world state as the threat or, or the asymmetric group as the main threat. Yeah, the war on terror uh, completely sort of uh, took people's eye off uh, the ball of conventional armoured warfare against a peer or near-peer enemy. And so we're just having to learn again. No, absolutely. And and in, in some ways, the Ukrainians are, are suffering because of the, that those lessons have to be learned again. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I have great sympathy for... Um, Zelensky and the Ukrainians and their demands for munitions and weaponry from the West, because they are almost fighting a proxy war for NATO. Not quite, because NATO isn't exactly uh, calling the agenda, although it's you know it's got very big influence on the agenda. But the Ukrainians are fighting, and uh, and we're not, and thank goodness we're not. But um, one has to have a certain amount of, of of sympathy for them, saying, well, you know, give us the give us the weaponry to do it properly. And we seem to have been slightly what I would call mealy-mouthed and tiptoeing around the topic and releasing weaponry to them, um, somehow fearing that we're going to um, escalate the conflict. Uh, and we're being bullied by Russia. I mean, the West is being bullied by Russia into not doing stuff. And my personal view is that we should reverse that and NATO and the West should start bullying Russia into doing what our agenda uh, suggests we should do. Yeah, and and I I always think about you know the the potential ramifications or or the potential consequences. I I know you had talked earlier this week about the the Wagner threat towards Poland. Um, you know, what if Russia you know uses their existing asymmetric groups to to potentially you know pressure NATO countries or or even you know conduct kinetic attacks against NATO countries? What what would be the consequences to something like that? Well, that's a difficult one to guess, but I guess my hypothesis would be if the if the Wagner Group, which is and if you, you know, I mean, I think we all know at a sort of at arm's length um, instrument of the Russian state, if the Wagner Group were to attack Poland, it really would mean that Russia is attacking Poland, and of course, under uh, NATO Article Five, as you're well aware. Attack against one NATO member is seen is to be taken as attack against them all, and there's no doubt that should it come to direct confrontation, certainly in my opinion, between NATO and Russia, there would only be one winner, and it wouldn't be Russia. Um, what devastation might ensue before that happens, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to guess. But I don't think Putin uh, really wants a, a direct confrontation with NATO, and so. The, the the idea that Wagner might inf- invade Poland is, you know, it's it's part of the distraction, it's part of Maskarovka, if you like, it's part of the whole military deception thing. But I really don't think at the moment that it's a realistic um, scenario. 
I, I, I think the polls are very much waiting in anticipation for, for a Wagner group, which has, has mostly disarmed from their heavy weapons, to, to attempt to conduct some form of infantry assault, per se, um, into, into uh, Polish territory. I, I, I think you would agree that the, the polls are, are fairly well-equipped to handle an issue like that. Oh yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't mess with the poles. Not, not now that they've they've got the bit between their teeth, and and their their military uh, uh, will be, if it isn't already, the, the strongest military in Europe, um, with uh, with with modern weaponry and um, and a great military tradition. So I, I really, you know, if I was advising uh, Mr. Putin, I would say you really don't want to mess with the poles because they'll punch you really hard back. And I, 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 it is really interesting looking at looking at the Polish, you know, expenditure. Looking at the Polish modernization plans, as 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 someone who has, you know, looked forward to force modernization before, is is that kind of that dream scenario where where the Polish military has been given the proper resources to do what they need to do? Well, it's beginning to look like it. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very impressed by the fact that they have, I think, come to an arrangement with South Korea. Uh, to purchase some of the most modern South Korean tanks, and I can't remember the nomenclature of them, but also to construct a factory in Poland that will that will, um, will that will produce the bulk of them. Uh, plus, they've got um, the U.S. Aegis system, anti-missile system, already in Poland, and they've got the Patriot system, um, and they have large numbers of of troops and vehicles, and their budget has increased significantly. So I think Poland is taking it seriously. And I also think that the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, are also taking it seriously within their own sort of fiscal constraints. Yeah, at the same time, if if you look at, you know, what has happened to the Russian units that, that have been, you know, menacing the Baltic states for the past, you know, 20 plus years, um, you know, nearing nearing 30 years at this point, um, but but you know that those units have obviously sort of not evaporated per se, but but a lot of them are are either you know combat ineffective or or otherwise occupied in Ukraine. Um, how does that kind of change the calculation for those states right now? Well, I mean, it's you know we live we live in in, in extraordinary times, and whereas maybe five years ago or or even less than that, maybe two years ago, we might not have envisaged a scenario whereby Russia might attack the Baltic states, or indeed Finland. Um, we now have to revise our thinking because they've done it with Ukraine. Everybody thought that was crazy uh, and that it wasn't going to happen, but it did. So I think that uh, you know we, we, we just have to be aware that the Russians and under Putin don't necessarily believe, uh, don't necessarily behave in what we in the West would see as a logical thought pattern. Um, and there are other forces at play there, probably internal, um, which allow them to, to, to do what some of us would see as outlandish um, acts. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, the, the whole, the whole uh, sort of uh, thing of, of invading Ukraine has, as we all know, had the opposite effect. Uh, it has prevented temporarily uh, the, access, the accession of Ukraine to NATO, but it's also persuaded two very traditionally neutral countries in Finland and Sweden to join. So it's been completely counterproductive for the Russian state. 
I know Russia previously having a, a certain degree of of at least not neutrality per se or 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 you know even handedness with with both Finland and Sweden, but but now those two are firmly uh, within NATO, or or at least Finland is firmly within NATO. Sweden appears to be firmly within NATO in 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 the coming months. Um, but but that you know does does that change the Russian calculus in in their their plans? Um, for for Europe, oh, I think und- undoubtedly, if if you look at the the Finnish military, it's pretty impressive actually. It's almost a sort of whole nation uh, mobilization in waiting, and they've got some great equipment, and and I think that um, they, they have some well motivated troops, especially when it comes to the if they have to defend their homeland, and Sweden also has got a fairly impressive military, uh, and 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 the interesting thing from a NATO point of view is that. Finland having acceded to NATO and Sweden shortly to do so um, as soon as the the final Turkish objections are overcome, which I'm sure they will be, it basically turns the Baltic Sea into a NATO lake because the Russians only have access to it at St. Petersburg and also from Kaliningrad where their Baltic Sea fleet is. But all the exits from the Baltic Sea are blocked you know, via the, the strait between Denmark and, and um and Sweden, so sweet. I mean, NATO is much, much stronger now in the northern flank than it ever has been. Yeah, and that that definitely has been at least. And I I know the second I'm going to mention Northern Defender, um, George is going to jump in and <laughs> and and talk about UK force presence in the region. Um, but you know that that has been a NATO focus um, recently, with you know cooperating especially with Norway. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I, you know, I, I can't remember the name of the exercises that were um, uh, late last year or earlier last year, but I, I remember talking about them with, on various TV programs. And yeah, you've just—I mean, you know—we have to be ever vigilant because the Russians um, will always identify and exploit any mistakes or gaps that we have. No, absolutely, and I—I I think I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll direct this one more towards George, but. You know, I, I know recently um, HMS Prince of Wales is now, you know, back out and, and actually exercising again, or or at least in workups. Um, but, you know, how, how does that sort of fit into the equation right now, at least in the, the, the North Atlantic? So, yeah, HMS Prince of Wales is currently sailing around the North Sea. She's currently exercising the jets and she's, she's making a massive, massive show of it. I, I don't know if anyone really follows mill twitter at all but it's i think after the i mean i'm sure we're all aware of what happened to Miss prince of wales very very recently her stint as the nato flagship didn't go particularly well but i i, I think they're, they're making up for it and they really are making up for it and with pace Um, they're, they're making a big song and dance about it yeah i, I know that i personally i don't follow the uh, hms prince wales twitter account but i have been seeing a number of tweets from it um coming coming across my for you page um over over the past week or so so i i I think that's that's definitely an 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 element of it yeah i mean i think that uh, if if i could just butt in here i think that um uh, Prince of Wales has now got a reputation to salvage, uh, and it's not their fault that the you know the shaft was off, whatever it was off bearing, and, and had to be repaired at, at vast expense. But they won't want to do that again, 
uh, and they'll want to show their metal and uh, show that they're at least as good as the other aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth. So, yeah, I mean, in a funny, sort of strange sort of way, the fact that they did have these mechanical troubles and had to go into refit for nine months might be in the longer term more productive for them in terms of operational capacity because they'll be absolutely desperate not to get it wrong again. Oh, no, I, I actually find myself watching, um, you know, the various marine traffic apps just to... Um, I think last time the issue was discovered when the Prince of Wales started going quite quite slowly, you know, for for what she was out. I think she was actually was it power tests she was doing at the time after departing um, Portsmouth. Yeah, Portsmouth or wherever it was, Devonport or wherever it was. Yeah, uh, but then Tugs started to appear, and you know, it's she didn't get too far on her last voyage, and it's just nice to see that she's still going. You know, this <laughs> this close to her leaving Recife. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that I mean, her, I mean, her commanding officer, the captain, must have been completely and utterly pissed off when yeah. his planned deployment across the Atlantic to wherever it was, New York, I think, yeah. was called off because of mechanical failure. Hugely embarrassing for the Royal Navy, but you know, these things happen. I mean, every every ship that isn't of you know more than six or seven in the class, they're all basically prototypes, oh, yeah. and. Um, and and you know with prototypes you expect things not to go right, but let's hope they've got it got it right now. Well, it's, that's exactly the way it was explained to me when I was on board that the Royal Navy have built two massive prototypes that are even within the same class. There are major differences between each ship, so it's it's good that they're back on track. Um, and I I think I believe it is Prince of Wales that's going to the US shortly to conduct trials with drones. For the life of me, I cannot remember the project name, but it's the, I want to say Mojave project. I, I, I don't know, George, but um, yeah, it, sound, it sounds sort of, sort of, you know, that's what's going to happen. But anyway, changing the, the topic slightly um, from Prince of Wales and the ship's many noteworthy <laughs> um, incidents, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously, Stuart, you, you've spoken before, you've written before on Russian disinformation. And it's, I believe it was the Express, uh, an article for the Express where you argued that Russia's best weapon is lies. Could you expand upon this and, and explain how disinformation works, you know, for, for an audience member who may not be particularly familiar with it, and, and sort of explain how it works in the context of NATO and the West? What are, what are Russia doing to try and undermine NATO and the West in, in that sort of context? Okay, well, well, very quickly, let's just um, uh, mention um, the sort of categories. Information is what we're all familiar with. It's stuff that comes into us. And in the military context, uh, lots of different sources of information are uh, collated and, uh, and so on and usually produce eventually what's called intelligence. Um, so that's fine, and we all, we all understand that. Misinformation is basically information that's wrong. And uh, it can be wrong for a whole host of reasons. It, it can be wrong because people have interpreted stuff wrongly. It can be wrong because the source was wrong and so on and so forth. But disinformation is the deliberate manipulation of information to present a false picture. And that's the thing that uh, we have to be very careful about uh, in the West. And it's also the thing that the Russians are very, very good at and have been uh, uh, you know, for for certainly since the beginning of the last century, and you see it in every aspect. I mean, 
their term maskarovka uh, is usually uh, translated as being deception and camouflage but it covers a whole spectrum of stuff from painting your tank white in winter which seems pretty obvious stuff to sending in troops into Crimea in 2014 with no badges of rank, so nobody really knew where they came from until it was all over, to uh, their uh, various operations uh, during the Second World War and beyond. The difference between um, Russian disinformation and um, Western disinformation is that the Russians tend to do it, Soviets and Russians tend to do it, on an epic scale. And so if you look at the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942, Oblique 43, for example, uh, the Russians moved armies um, to mount their uh, counteroffensive uh, without the Germans knowing that that's what they were doing. They assembled artillery, ammunition, and managed to do it behind a screen of, of camouflage and deception. And so when, when the blow came, um, it, it was least expected. They did the same at Kursk. They did the same uh, with Operation Bagration in 1945, which basically ended the Nazi regime. Um, and, and they're past masters at it, and it's deeply ingrained in their doctrine. We in the West also use disinformation. Uh, I can give you the, the example of the Ghost Army in Kent, uh, which existed just before the Normandy landings on the 6th of June 1944, which persuaded the Germans that the main thrust was going to come across the uh, the, the, the Dover Strait and, and into Kelly, when quite clearly it wasn't. And uh, and then even, you know, at, at a lower scale, Operation Mincemeat, where the poor uh, homeless chap who'd, um, who'd become deceased in London was dressed up as a Royal Marines officer and dumped off a submarine in uh, off the coast oh, of yeah, Spain yeah. With, with, with papers which were false. So every, everybody does it. But th- th- I think the difference is that the Russians... Um, do it in an epic scale, and they also do it during peacetime. Um, and it takes all sorts of forms. I mean, it is, I mean, cyber, the cyber domain, if you want to call it that, is very much uh, in the news these days. And and the Russians are, I mean, I, you know, my stuff, my little articles are I write in the Daily Express, um, saying such and such every single time, the same. Um, uh, sort of trolls and bots from inside Russia come in and comment and say, well, you know, the guy's talking rubbish, doesn't know what he's talking about. He was never a proper army officer anyway. Why was he only a lieutenant colonel? He failed. And it's just part and parcel of what they do. Oh, yeah, there was a great deal of it. Again, to to jump back to everyone's favourite aircraft carrier, the Prince of Wales, there was, on various, you know, Russian language, Russian-English language, um, channels on the likes of Twitter, Facebook, all, all that kind of stuff. The news that HMS Prince of Wales was having parts cannibalised to go on Queen Elizabeth, which is, I'm sure many are aware, is a perfectly normal thing, for a, especially of a ship class of two. Um, though that news was spun into, you know, the, the ship being scrapped. And yeah. I, that, that, that news grew arms and legs, no matter any sort of corrections were made by the Ministry of Defence, by you know, various people with interests by the Royal Navy. It just, it just kept going. I, I, I'm still, you know, I get tags and tweets, for example, people tagging me in with Russian accounts complaining that, not complaining, probably, uh, sorry, celebrating that Prince of Wales has been scrapped when, of course, you know, it hasn't as at sea. But yeah. a, a more relevant question, I, I suppose, would be, you know, I'm curious, how much has Russian disinformation and PDD intelligence gathering and processing 
on the for the Ukrainians in the war? Has it been a massive setback for them? Um, um, now, I don't know if I'm properly qualified to that. So, so may I go off at a tangent here? Of course. And say that, uh, and George and I have discussed this before, that uh, we also have our own uh, domestic disinformation campaigns. And um, they're much more in George's uh, area of expertise than mine. And we're talking about uh, essentially and, and mainly Scottish nationalist, Scottish independence supporters who are constantly providing the refrain that, uh, you know, not, not only that Prince of Wales has been scrapped and sold for spares, but that the British aircraft carriers have got no aircraft, um, uh, that we were promised whatever it was, eight frigates to be built in the Clyde. There were only, or no, sorry, 13, but there were only eight. And when you point out to these people that, in fact, yes, that's the case, but the gap was filled by other orders, they just don't believe you. And we have this thing called the betrayal of the Clyde in yeah. Scotland because, you know, all the Royal Navy warships are built on the Clyde these days. Uh, uh, and nationalists keep coming back and saying, ah, yes, but the Clyde has been betrayed by the Tory government. And when George, primarily, and I sometimes say, well, hang on a minute, the Clyde can't build anymore. The order book is full for the next 10 years. Yeah. They just won't accept it. It's cognitive dis dissonance. But I think part of that, and I've got no proof for it whatsoever, uh, is being driven by Russian um, uh, disinformation. But I can't prove it at all. I've got no proof. So uh, I'll, I'll hop in briefly here, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, Stuart. But I think this, this plays into a larger strategy that we've seen from Russian disinfo, and that's to target existing political rifts within individual countries. Um, when it comes to the United States, there's been large-scale sort of Russian support for disinfo regarding you know, splits between political parties in the U.S., uh, targeting, you know, isolationist groups slash, quote-unquote, um, pacifist groups in name, I call them pacifists in name only, uh, groups that, you know, talk about how the United States shouldn't be involved in NATO, they shouldn't be involved in the war in Ukraine, it's not our continent, it's not our war, so on and so forth. Uh, likewise, in looking at, you know, across the ocean at Africa, when you look at uh Disinformation run by the Wagner Group that's, you know, being Russian funded and everything targeting um, particularly West African nations talking, you know, driving narratives against the French, against the, the West in general, um, but targeting specific entities and polities within these countries that either have an axe to grind against the government in power or an axe to grind against the West, so on and so forth. And so when you talk about, you know, the betrayal of the Clyde, when you talk about uh, Scottish political parties sort of looking at the, the current Tory government and things like that, I think this is, a, this is a playbook that we're seeing go on around the world. I mean, we just had uh, yet another coup in West Africa against a generally Western-friendly government. And so my question to you then was, do you believe that sort of the amplification of some of these narratives and the targeting of specific... Um, political rifts within countries is not only well within the Russian playbook, but we can expect more of it in the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I know for a, you're talking about the recent coup in Niger, um, where the generally, as you said, pro-Western president has been deposed by his uh, general in charge of his presidential guard. You know, it's, 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 it's basically like the Roman Empire. And um, one of the first people to, to, to load the, the uh, 
the coup was um, Przogin, head of the, the Wagner Group. And you now have a belt across sub-Saharan Africa, more or less the, the Sahel as a whole, from the Atlantic to the Red Sea, which is pivoting or appears to be pivoting towards Russia. And I think that they will see that as a great success. Uh, and at, at some point, we, we have to sort of, I think... So, I mean, people know this is happening, but we're not alive to it yet, if you if you know what I mean. And I think that uh, this is very much from the Russian playbook, and this is the way that they seek to undermine the West, uh, undermine NATO, and gain advantage. So that's the Russians, but I mean, I can I'm, I'm pretty certain the Chinese are doing exactly the same thing. So we've got to keep our wits about us. I guess the, the follow-up question to that is, I think it's been well addressed by uh, many different sort of guests we've had on this podcast uh, about the effects of disinformation, how it operates. I think the question left in many of our listeners' heads is, how can it be properly addressed? I think what we've seen thus far is we've seen some cases where government institutions have addressed cases of Russian disinfo in what ways that they can via press releases and things of the sort. We've seen mostly news organizations attempt to sort of fact-check and log these things. And yet, you know, these narratives still do continue to garner traction. They continue to be generated. I mean, there's money behind them. There's ways to do that. I think the major question in everyone's heads is, is there a better way to combat it? Is there a way to get ahead of it? You know, there's the, the quote that's commonly attributed to Churchill, but actually I think uh, belongs to Mark Twain, that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has the chance to put its pants on. <laughs> so my question would be, in, in, in your, on your standpoint, is there a better way to go about fact-checking than we are doing currently? Well, I mean, I think there are, there, there are um, certain ways that, that we can minimize being fed disinformation. And, um, uh, and none of these will come as a surprise to anybody. But I think that um, we have to accept that uh, some news outlets are reputable and have a reputation uh, for checking the facts and making sure that they've got it right before they, they publish it. In, in British media parlance, that the story stacks up uh, before, they, before they punt it out into the, um, uh, into, into the atmosphere. Um, and also that we have to be aware that uh, in this modern age, with social media and uh, communic you know, instant communications, everybody's a journalist these days. Uh, and you have to be very careful which journalists, in inverted commas, you choose to, um, to believe and, and to follow. And I think that it's incumbent on all of us not just to use one source of information, but to check it. And personally... I mean, I think that the BBC, by and large, is still uh, is still a reputable organisation which seeks to present information uh, in in the correct way. Although there are lots of accusations that it's left wing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, you know, I, you know, I read, I will read the Times newspaper, which is pretty establishment in Britain. I'll watch the BBC, and then I'll, um, if I've got time, and I've, I have got time now that I'm retired, I'll um, look at Channel Four News, which has got a leftist or leftish stance, and then I'll read The Guardian, and which is leftist. And then you, you, you apply what, what um, I always say to, to, to my, my friends, which makes them laugh, is you apply the common sense test. Does this make sense to me? 
Um, I, you know, I've read the sources. I see what they're saying. And then you have to make your judgment. And I think that's what everybody has to do. Um, because the world is full of echo chambers where people listen to just what they want to hear. Uh, and even if it's uncomfortable sometimes, uh, you have to accept the fact that maybe the information you're getting from one source is actually wrong, even although you've always relied on it. And there's another angle to it. And, you know, changing your mind has never been... Uh, has never not been part of the intellectual process. And I, you know, I've done it more times than I care to remember. But, um, yeah, I think we just have to be... I think we have to be alive to what's going on. We have to use multi-source, broad-spectrum sources of information. And then I think we have to apply our judgment in a mature and sort of reasoned way. Uh, and um, And I think that's the way to combat it. How you do that on an institutional basis, as in terms of... Uh, you know, military intelligence or or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it, it is it is obviously a concern. Um, it it is one that there are many debates and conversations on. Um, but yeah, no, even even when it comes to just absorbing media content, um, I I know some people get incredibly angry at me. Um, even even people with a large amount of experience, a lot of professionalism, um, when I will quote or actually read um, material that comes from either Russian mill bloggers or Russian propagandists or Russian media channels, um, because, you know, sometimes they, they actually have information um, or sometimes they actually have some level of real information. Um, and I, I think that there is the at least calculation that sometimes you have to read disparate sources um and and again you you have to practice a level of information security or at least an under, uh, understanding security um where where you know you you go into every source with with a level of fact checking with a level of understanding how to fact check with a level of of understanding what the source's potential biases are um, and, and being able to sort of take those all into account when you actually, you know, read a source and, and absorb the information from that source. Um, and I think a lot of people don't do that, um, which I again, mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest enemies of, of, of finding the truth is cognitive dissonance, by which I mean, don't, don't give me that information because it doesn't agree with what I think already. And, you know, you see that all the time. And that's dangerous because people are closing their minds, not opening their minds. Well, yeah, no, and absolutely. I mean, some of the largest, um, you know, Ukrainian information environment Twitter accounts um, don't literally just post text um, with kind of feel-good stories. Um, and that that's really attractive for people to read. You know, if it, it's a feel good story, I'm going to like it. I'm going to, you know, retweet it. You know, this is this is something that's really good for me. This is something that, you know, makes me feel good. Um, and I, I think that is a huge part of, of how that information environment's kind of gone downhill. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And 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 and, and uh, on the other side of the of, of the equation, there's the the fact that uh, one of the early Ukrainian attacks Foundered in a minefield, uh, with the resulting destruction or or, or incapacitation of a couple of Leopard two A sixes and a handful of um, American Bradley uh, IFVs, and that again was seen in isolation and rebroadcast as on multiple different channels, 
to the extent that people thought, well, this is happening all over the front, you know, and it was one incident. I also think it was a prerequisite for every single Russian drone to when they were going out on a mission in the area to, to get another <laughs> shot of, of the pileup for, for at least a week straight. Yeah, could we have the wide angle shot this time, please? <laughs> now, now a close up, and now, now a now a, a yeah, long, yeah, long yeah, angle yeah. one from far away. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that is another part of at least the Russian information environment has been the the prolific reposting of of any one victory. Um, you know, when the Russians have a victory, it's going to be filmed a lot. Um, yep. and and. That is one thing that, again, people, you know, who are in the pro on the pro Russia side of things, they'll see that, you know, it'll make them feel good. And they'll they'll retweet the the 15th or 16th different photo of, you know, the single event. Um, And and (laughs) it's it's the feel goodism of 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 the news. You're absolutely right. And it happens in all walks of life, particularly in politics, when it comes to pulling of potential votes at the next election in Scotland or in, uh, or in the UK, for example, people tend to post what they want to hear. No, and and I'll I I, I will never get involved in UK politics because I. <laughs> Why not? It's just so much fun. I'll, I'll leave that to you, George. You're you're a bit better at it than I am. Come um, on, technically, you're telling me you didn't enjoy the cabbage. <laughs> okay, the the cabbage the cabbage was legitimately hilarious, but that was because. On its own, and so was the vegetable that they used to measure her time in office. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't it, a <laughs> wasn't it a lettuce? It was a lettuce. You're right. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, and right. I'm I'm sure if the and Prince now you're spreading disinformation online. <laughs> no, but but George, if the Prince of Wales breaks down again, next time it goes out, you're gonna have to put a lettuce out to see which goes first. <laughs> Very good. Okay, and I think I, I has has everyone gotten you know the major I, I think I've hit the major notes that I have for yeah. for the week. Um, anyone else want to say anything? Um, well, I, I can tell you what my next um, uh, the piece that I'm writing at the moment is. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll take I'll take yeah. that anytime. <laughs> yeah, if, if that's of any interest, I um, like you. I suspect get a lot of my information from Twitter. And uh, I stumbled a- across this very short tweet from the BBC's defence correspondent, Jonathan Beale, who's actually in Ukraine and has been for some time. And he-, he posed the question, what has happened and or where are uh, the 14 Challenger 2s that the UK supplied to Ukraine uh, some months ago? And he apparently had asked two of the generals directing Ukrainian operations in the south and southeast of the country, uh, who replied that they haven't got them. So it, it's slightly tabloid, but the, but the question is, where are the UK tanks? Now, there could be a multitude of answers to that, of course. And, and we have to bear in mind that there's only 14 of them. So it's, you know, it's not a brigade's worth, it's a squadron company group's worth at best. And also that they may not be committed yet, just because they're, you know, the, the brigade hasn't been committed yet. But um, it's an interesting little angle. So I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm writing something like that for the Daily Express, probably for Monday, basically saying where have the challengers gone, and so, then leading on to the fact that the UK doesn't have a big enough tank fleet, which I think everybody knows. 
So um, I think that, I can both answer your question here and give you another absolutely amazing art angle to your article. But um, they most likely we have one video so far. Um, if just just take any guess to what unit the Challenger twos would have gone to. Oh lordy! I, I mean, I don't even I don't even know, but I, I would assume that it is a a Western oblique NATO equipped brigade, which is probably still in reserve. Is that was that a good guess? Somewhat, yes. They've they've actually gone to the Ukrainian air assault forces, um, really? who who appear like who, who appear now to be operating a mix of um, of German supplied Martyr one eight threes. Um, and, and Challenger 2s, which I, I, I do find incredibly funny. And I'll, I'll send you over. I, I did a bit of a, a dive into at least what we've seen so far. Um, but they're, they're most likely in Zodemir right now um, at the 199th Training and Education Center. Um, oh, fantastic. fantastic. Can, you, can you ping me that information? I, that I absolutely will. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's incredibly funny. And I think I said this, that it's, it's air assault with 33.5 ton IFVs and 65 ton MBTs. Absolutely. Um, and, Absolutely. But, but they do appear to be, as you were saying, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head here, you know, a unit or units that are more welcoming to Western standard equipment. Um, yeah. You know, Ukrainian air assault forces are, are typically seen as more or not competent per se, but higher level of training, higher level of readiness. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's quite interesting that they've got a mix of German and uh, and British equipment. So, I mean, I know, I know that everybody is waiting for the first videos of Challenger twos in action, or you know, a convert, you know, Challenger twos blowing their tracks off or being being uh, being hit by uh, uh, Russian anti tank missiles. And I've also postulated that Putin would be more than happy to capture one intact and parade it in Red Square. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but who knows? They they have captured two. They 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 captured a um a, a French uh, why is AMX the 10RC. AMX ten RC which very understandable. Of course, the first vehicle they're going to capture capture is going to be effectively a scout car. Um, and yep. I believe they captured a Swedish or potentially. I don't think they've actually managed to move it or recover it yet. Um, a CVC ninety. Um, okay. Both of which are very understandable that those would be the first vehicles captured. Yep. Yeah, well, I'd be I'd be really grateful if any of that information you can just ping across because I from open sources I haven't had sight of that yet. Yeah, we've got so, got two and a half minutes of uh, Challenger 2's training um, at, yeah. at that training ground. I have, I have I have one final question for you, Stuart, and it's on behalf of our listeners. Now, I believe you have your own podcast. I've I've appeared on it before. So so where may people you know find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, uh, George, you did um, appear on my own podcast, and in fact, you were our most distinguished guest to date on that, and we had yeah. great fun doing it. Um, I, I've got a sort of small support mechanism behind me, and I'm just looking to make sure I get the, the um, website right. Um, if you if you people want to follow what I'm doing and see other podcasts and some of the writing I've been doing, and indeed, some of the, the YouTube, YouTube videos of, of, of speaking on TV and all that sort of stuff. It's on uh, www.defensereview.uk. And that will be uh, linked below as well. Yeah, and that's, that's run by a very nice chap called Tony Fitzpatrick, 
who is, well, George has met him, who's um, very much uh, media savvy. And uh, that's that's where most of my relevant stuff goes. So um, that's, where, that's where it is. But otherwise, Daily Express, you know, whatever it is, co.uk, carries maybe two or three columns a week at the moment. That is that is that is a very solid number coming 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 from from our end. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's um, it's fun. I you know I I, I do it actually because I've always written uh, when I was serving uh, and uh, post serving and uh, on all sorts of things, mainly military, but quite a lot of social comment and occasionally some humorous stuff uh, and about stuff that I've noticed um, in the, you know in the local community, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's always been a hobby of mine. Plus book reviews, which I've done a few of as well. I think everybody does book reviews at some point in their writing career, but. Um, yeah, so that's where it is anyway, and you you can catch it up there. Yeah, it's I I always find defense publications to be possibly or at least you know primarily uh, 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 military staffed uh, defense publications to be possibly some of the most helpful journals when it comes to actually understanding what's happening. Um, of course, me coming from the U.S. Navy side of things, we we have you know the United States Naval Institute proceedings, which is possibly one of one of the, the greatest um, in, in the field. Um, and it's it's always great to see more actually come up with with people who know what they're talking about. Well, it is terrific, actually. And I, and I do I, I do sort of delve into as many of, of these publications as I can offline and online. But, you know, there's, there's only so much you can read in a day. <laughs> Figure out how to get more of those hours in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, a George. very great pleasure. Thank and, you very uh, much, and I enjoyed, enjoyed it thoroughly, and I hope we'll speak again at some point soon. All right. <laughs>